0: To shake off the conditioning of your upbringing or your culture, to examine it from all sides and determine what is harmful. I had a conversation with the creator of Vega, Iwoma Okoro, about religion and fanaticism, futuristic world building, the power of narrative performance, and more. And now you can listen to it right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello and welcome to Radio Drama Revival the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Last week, we introduced you to Vega, a futuristic fantasy world where the best government bounty hunter ever seen must make the decision to track down a terrorist who attacks her family and community. It's a world made better by technology, where certain evils and horrors have been eradicated through the application of tech and knowledge But where others have been left to flourish. Patraxus, where Vega is from, is a place ruled by a techno-theocracy where people in service to deified power control the state and the government. It's a highly regarded service and career to be a bounty hunter for them, to track down and kill notorious criminals. Of course, then there's Knox where religion is a lot messier and less rigidly structured, and that impact can't be seen in its relationship to Patrexus. Ivoma Okoro initially wanted to make TV scripts, but then moved into novel writing for Vega before turning it into a podcast. Her style as a casual friend narrating their favorite movie is electric and engaging, and rather unique in the field of fiction podcasting when it began in our interview, we discuss this storytelling style and the worlds of Patraxis and Nox with Iwoma so that everyone can have more insight into the thought process and emotions behind the story of Vega.
1: Thank you so much for coming on RDR. Uh, we're really excited to talk with you about Vega. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's let's get started with a little bit of of background here. You moved to Los Angeles to become a writer back in 2016. And you mentioned in an interview with Voyage LA that the industry didn't really mesh with what you wanted and needed for your work to flourish. Can you describe a little bit more of what that time looked like? And what about the industry didn't
2: work for you? Obviously, Vega is sci fi adventure, and it's like people of color. And I feel like and it's also just like it's kind of it's kind of kitty like it could be for um teens um but it's also dealing with like very heavy subject matter and yeah also just dealing with like things about morality that are that i find interesting so i feel like when i got to la i really just wanted to be a writer and not necessarily a marketer of myself as a writer i wanted to actually get to writing stories rather than like doing networking um and granted not that i'm knocking that i just feel like it was really hard for me um to pivot and to have to um possibly do a bunch of other things before i got to actually write and so i did a couple of networking things reached out to people and had like the kind of lunches where it's like we are meeting to see if maybe possibly later after we ping each other for years and years if we can work together something like that you know (laughs) like Or maybe I would just be like, you know, these are my goals and they would give me a list of things to do. And all those things sounded like things that I did not want to do or trying to get to places in the industry that I didn't necessarily want to get to. Um, And I knew pretty quickly, too, that the industry was you know, white dominated, male dominated, like those were the people who said yes and who had to be interested in the stories that you're telling. And I didn't necessarily know if the stuff that I um, wanted to tell would be would ever be of interest to those kinds of people. So, I've always been like a self starter. I mean, I've always been to the idea of being like, you can just do it yourself. Like, if you, if you can do it yourself, you should. Uh, don't ask for permission to do things that you want to do. So, um, very quickly, I landed on the idea of, well, why don't I just make a novel? Novels like so self sufficient. Um, and after doing the novel for a while, which felt pretty pure, like I feel like I still that's still my dream. I just want to write stories um but i ultimately ended up making vega a podcast as you guys know and um (laughs) and uh um i what i love about that is the access directly to the listeners and to people who want to consume the story Um, whereas publishing is like that would have been years from now if my first manuscript would have been the one to get to get me an agent and to get signed and to get Mm -hmm. out so it was just so much more quick. And so I, I just love it. But I do think that uh, even when I think about getting into the industry now or the podcast industry kind of blowing up, like I just don't want to deal with like people <laughs> who are like just have different agendas <laughs> for stories and need to market and not necessarily do they care about the kind of things that I care about as a creator and a writer. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What uh, what motivated that that move that you made into making uh, Vega an audio work?
2: So I'm trying to think back now. I think that, so I didn't know about like audio dramas. Um, I didn't realize there was a whole like hashtag audio Sunday, you know, like I, I didn't know about any of that. I thought I was doing something brand new, but what I had, what I had heard of, uh, was maximum fun show, um, bubble. Mm -hmm. It was like a bubble on Mars and there were like monster hunters in the bubble and it was like a full cast production and it was just so cool. Uh, And I had heard about a couple audio fiction shows prior to that, but they were the kind of full cast shows that didn't have like narration. And I think what really appealed to me about Bubble Mm -hmm. was that um, they read the scene directions and so it had that narrator feel and I felt like that was a, a lot that was really accessible for me.
1: Let's get into Vega here. So in the first two episodes, you introduce the audience to Patraxus and Knox in a really wonderful way, right? You describe their ideologies and idioms that they have and what stereotypes they're known for, for example. So describe for our audience a little more about this fantastical futuristic world that you've settled um, Patraxus and Knox within.
2: My idea for world building really came from this idea of like, you know, Global world shaping powers, Uh, if religion had been one of those things and if science had been one of those things, what kinds of nations would we have? So I think a nation like Patraxis is a combination of a nation that is a global, like military, political power that values science and like advancement and like what science can do for the future of the world mixed with like a uh, just like a really intense religion (laughs) Um. Yeah, like a very intense, like good, bad morality, a very drawn line sort of um, belief system. Yeah. And then Knox being this place that is everything that an uh, uh, entity like that would judge, like just being like not they don't have it together. They are constantly torn apart by different areas of political strife as where Patraxus is very unified and everybody believes in the one God. Um, Knox is like very multi, very poly, very diverse, uh, but is torn apart by that, um, by tribalism. And uh, has to deal with that strife. It's, it's the, you know, Mm -hmm. the, I think for a nation like Patraxus, it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to use science to imagine a wonderful future where none of those people exist, you know? And so Knox is like, yeah, like that, or like there's like, there's just no, no real future in which they will come out and be on to or, you know, be equal, you know, kind of like everybody needs to be us or be gone. Um, is uh-huh. I would say the, like the world power stance of um, the country of Patraxus. So yeah, Knox is just everything different from that. Um, yeah. But like an underdog, like, you know, i'm hoping in this story to get to a place mm-hmm. where it's like you understand like these people are not bad even though the people who were who we started out with and who were following want to paint them that way so as you describe with patraxis
1: um there's this amazing hybrid of uh, fantasy and sci-fi in vega that mm-hmm. gives everything a very unreal edge um, so why, why did you blend these high concept technological structures with the fantastical elements? Like what's important about that blend in particular?
2: I kind of realize that a lot of storytelling is like kind of writing the kind of story that you want to see. Right. So I've always been very interested in, or just like very mesmerized by like high tech and you know fantasy future that is glistening i've never been a dystopia you know gritty everything's broken the world <sighs> went through some sort of nuclear fallout and now yeah. we're just you know scavenging around in the dusty you know um landscape i like the idea of a future of abundance like science has figured out the problems of scarcity or you know some of these resources that were just eradicating we found ways to make them renewable or things like that like so part of that is just where my imagination wants to go as a creator and what i think would be fascinating and cool to play in i think like for myself also when thinking about what would make a cool world i think about worlds that i have enjoyed um i guess playing in or imagining myself into um I grew up in the 90s <laughs> so like everyone I like Harry Potter and that was like one of the first worlds that I was like wow this is dope like I want to live here um and when I went back and read them a couple of years ago um, as an adult I still felt that sense of wonder that JK Rowling created with just like playing you know birdie bots every flavor of beans, just like these random little details that are just so imaginative and fun and i wanted it to kind of feel like that like i wanted um at least the science and fantasy aspects to create a world that might for a viewer or a listener be fun to play in um so yeah so science and high-techy stuff like i like the idea of a future that's like fun and cool and seems like oh that'd be nice um, I I also heard a little bit ago about this term called a protopia. So as opposed to a utopia or a dystopia, a protopia is like we're a little bit farther. We figured out a little more things in terms of like tech you know tech and science and how to, you know, just like we figured things out a little bit more as a world. We're a little a little bit more progressed, but we still all have all the human problems of c- corruption, capitalism, exploitation you know some people were colonized and still feeling the effects of that um so yeah so that kind of all went into the world building for me and then um with the fantasy aspects which i i I guess would be the um political structure or just like the structure of vega's government right she Mm -hmm. like works for the government she's a hunter like a moral like a crusader basically and uh, she kills people for moral reasons and her government like is the top people are prophets and um priests um and so that to me is interesting i i come from a religious background <clears throat> where not catholicism but i think um probably the structure that you that you see in vega would most closely align to that um but yeah it's just this this idea of there's a is there a supernatural, um, element to those things? Like do the prophets hear from the God or is it just like man pretending that so, so they can have authority, you know, like, so those are kind of things that I wanted to explore, I guess in my own religious journey. So you
1: mentioned, um, you know, these, these intimate scenes, right. That that Vega has with her uncle. Um, and I, I really love the relationship also between Galix and Vega, as portrayed in, especially as portrayed in episode two, which everyone here has heard, um, with the call with him, yeah. uh, in the sky pod. Um, what, what's the importance for you of portraying these familiar relationships in the way that you have?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like, like one of the main things that you think of, you know, if someone says this story is about a bounty hunter, um, you think of somebody who's alone and, Uh, you know has a has a hard edge doesn't like people they're not very sociable (laughs) all these kind of things and I really wanted to portray like this society like their killers are not like that like they are normal they're just like integrated you know it's like it's this elevated normal thing to do and that she's not some like rogue you know like I don't know who you who you might think of like a boba fett or like a i'm not very good with star wars i don't even know if that was the right character but um like a yeah like a you know trained killer who's very stoic and Mm -hmm. distanced but she is a um a family person yeah and so Mm -hmm. i think like that relationship with her dad you know for for where the story is going like she's gonna have to make some big choices in terms of like am i gonna give up my family in order to pursue this thing that i really want to do um that is against the rules um and i yeah so i wanted from the very beginning to show like how close she is and so like like the whole story really like she's um you know if you're listening through the end of season one there's a lot of stuff with her with her cousin that becomes like very important um which will also be very important through seasons two and three and then there's stuff with her you know like there's going to be stuff with her dad the the relationship that she had with her uncle, like these are all like the most important relationships in her life. Um, and yeah, will when, you know, like to start off with that being like, Hey, she is, starting from this very like loved and comfortable connected place and where the story is going to go um is going to challenge all that so that I think was the reason why I wanted to make sure just at the very beginning like we know Mm -hmm. like this is the kind of girl who calls her dad in the middle of a mission to like (laughs) vent about how bad the mission is going you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) yep oh I love that the description of like are you calling me in the middle of a mission? <laughs> I have, like the description of like the the parent, like the child who realizes this is the voice of a parent. It knows just that like, yeah, you've done something wrong.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I was just like, like, oh yeah. yes, <laughs> that will resonate with many people. <laughs> yeah. Um, our our producer Eli. Um, commented uh, that the visuals that he gets from listening to Vega are very anime-like, right? Inebrios hmm. um, reminds him of scenes from Cowboy Bebop, for example. Oh, cool. Um, and I know from your bio over at Film Independent that you are a huge fan of Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes. Um, so, first, what are some touchstone medias uh, for you when you are making Vega?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Avatar The Last Airbender is my favorite show, for sure. I think it's, like, perfectly structured. And Mm -hmm. it's got, like, the development for all the main characters is amazing. Um, I think, also, too, I don't think I've still seen a better um, villain, female villain, Uh than Azula. And then her demise into season three, I don't think I've seen a better, like, um a star ha- is falling sort of thing. Like, this, this is going go down. Yeah, and it's, like, so well-developed, and you see it coming, and then you see her cracking, and it's, it's just, like, so powerful still, just to even think about some mm-hmm. of those visuals. So Avatar, definitely, I'm heavily influenced by. Um, I would say... Um, man, that's, like, a big one. Um, yeah. it's, I, I think um, I have a case of the recentisms, but I... I recently consumed she uh the dream animated mm-hmm. show i thought that was really really well structured in terms of um like a series like the whole thing just went somewhere and brought everybody with them you know sort of sort of thing yeah i feel like one of the things though i do feel like when i tell people that i write sci-fi they're like "Oh, well, have you read like pantheon of books and i'm like no i i haven't i feel like i my influence are very sporadic, like diverse. Like one of the, I think one of my favorite books is a, uh, a tale of two cities. And I just love like the poetic nature of it. Like the, the writing I think is just so strong. So I'm very, I'm very impressed by writing that I think is deep and touches on things that feel weighty. And then adventures. I just really like, uh, so I'm linking on a, on more of the names for shows, but, um, I haven't seen as much as I should.
1: No, that's okay. I mean, wh- whatever was was the, the touchstone media for you that you were like drawing inspiration from is what it is, right? Yeah. Um, and that's just you know the the vibe that that we got here is that yeah. Eli is like, yeah, I can picture like scenes from anime.
2: Yeah, that's um, so cool. I think I would I would love to hear Eli's recommendations for what I should watch. I feel yeah. like there that, that would be a good list.
1: All right, well, Eli, you heard it here. Yeah, you you need to send you need to send Ibuma some some wrecks. Eli also said that maybe Ghost in the Shell, but like I've been
2: recommended that before.
1: Yeah, so there you go. Okay, Ghost in the Shell. I'll write that down. Yeah, just make sure it's not the one with Scarlett Johansson. No, the the anime. Not I heard (laughs) the yeah.
0: (laughs) First. I just want to remind you of the project Radio Drama Revival is hosting with Tandon Productions at their creative corner on Instagram. A series of interviews with the writers and actors at Life on Pause, an anthology created in quarantine. You can join us at 3pm Pacific on most Fridays and Saturdays from now until January 24th over at Life on Pause Pod or at Radio Drama Revival on Instagram Live to watch us chat about craft, Storytelling, and the power of audio during quarantine. Our next is a chat with Marissa Tanton herself on December 18th and with actor Dallas Seeker on the 20th. That said, let's dip back into our conversation with Yvoma Okoro.
1: Uh, you have what I think is a fairly unique storytelling technique in fiction Mm. podcasting, right? Um, It leans into being casual and friendly. It relies on even making like modern real world fiction comparisons in the Mm. fantasy world, right? Which underscores the feeling of Vega being a story uh, told by a friend. So first of all, why did you decide to perform Vega in this way?
2: Yeah, I, I think because I didn't know other people were doing things differently. That probably would be the first one. If I had known, maybe I would have um thought differently. But I'm kinda glad that I didn't know I'm really prior. glad you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So that I um didn't end up kind of like, yeah, like I I like the style that I have. And I think I came to that because all the podcasts that I were listening to prior to making my own were nonfiction ones so like one of my mm. favorite ones uh but it was a new york times podcast called still processing and it oh, was that yeah. kind of thing where you know they're just like talking about different subjects and they're bringing in all these cultural references so like they're two the two hosts were are uh, two new york times culture writers so they're very culturally adept and um, but also very fun and the strength of yeah. the show I think is in their personalities and then just like talking about things and you just want to hear them. Like I wouldn't have never like usually when I listen to an, an episode, it's like something I've never, like something like I didn't watch. Like, so they're talking about like Tiger King, like I didn't watch the show, but I want to hear what they have to say about it. You know, <laughs> like, it's like, I, I don't care what it is. Like I, I want to hear them talk. And so um, that's kind of what, I, that, that was kind of the, I guess the quote unquote magic I wanted to capture in the storytelling personality driven like model um, mm-hmm. just to have people being like, yeah, like I don't really know or maybe even care about your story, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Right. So the effect here in
1: what you've done is that Vega feels at least partially improvised. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does your scripting and performance actually look like? Is it
2: partially improvised? Yeah, that's a good question that I have gotten before. It It is written, all of it. But there are times where I'm what I've written doesn't seem um, as off the cuff to me. So I'll like say it in a way that feels more so off of the cuff. But like all of the jokes, like es- like especially um, the second half of the season, I had to write them all together. Like everything is written like, you know, all of the plot stuff I have to make sure it's like right Um, but yeah, it is, uh, made to feel it's written to feel spontaneous. Um, so it's, I would say it's like 95% written that way. And then like 5% like throwing things in. I do. And, um, maybe this is, this has become evident to over this podcast that I'm doing, but I have a little bit of a stutter. So like, if I'm trying to say something and it doesn't come out, I have to find another way to say it, you know? Um, so things like that. So if you ever hear me like stutter in Vega, it's because that was a, you know, an improv line. And I was like, you know what? I like the way it sounds. I'm gonna keep it in there. It sounds natural to me. So mm-hmm. there are times where I choose to keep that in, but most of the time it's written to sound spontaneous. You do a
1: very good job. Oh, you. Um <laughs> You took a hiatus uh, between halves of this season. And of course, the whole time, uh, as you've mentioned in in previous interviews, you've been working full time in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Um, And I want to give you the space here to talk about your experiences with the financial realities um, in podcasting, especially as an independent producer.
2: Yeah. I'd be curious to know. um, Yeah. Like other people on your show, how they've answered this question, because I feel like my experience has been really tough. I haven't made a lot and but then i talked to some folks who seem to be able to spin a living out of doing this and I'm always intrigued to know how that's happening and it sounds like for the folks who are they're really busy <laughs> doing like <laughs> 30 shows at once and i'm like wow i don't know if i can or want to do that um mm-hmm. but for me it has been tough um i i make so i have a patreon that i started um midway through. So there was an announcement, like uh, episodes one through five or one through six happened. And then I thought, okay, maybe this is a good time. I've got enough of an audience to like start to build a Patreon to support the work. And I did that. And it's, it's been growing. Like over the time that I did that, it has not, st- it, it it's not, it's still growing at a pace that I think it's like, okay, cool. Like people are still finding it and wanting to support it. Um and so that has been really the only financial um income that I've that I've gotten from Vega. Um but something cool that I didn't know um would happen and that you know one would hope to happen is that other people reach out and hey, do you want to write for this? Can you write on that? It, it it's been a good calling card. Um, so I think in the same way, if you're in the film industry, if you make, if you make anything, if you make a short people like, or something, people are more willing to offer you work, um, because they've seen your other work and they like it and they want you to reproduce whatever, um, it is that struck them when they when they heard your original work. Um, so I think that the, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, better than I do, like Hollywood's getting super interested now and like podcast, you know, indie, like the like like the indie podcasters and um you know, so I, I did get approached by one one of these folks like went up to the Pacific buildings, you know. I don't know if you know the ones in Hollywood or like in we hill that are like really big. Like one of them's like yeah. green, one of them's blue, one of them's red. I went into the <laughs> red one on the on the on the sky platform level, this huge office with these like, you know, oh, man, it's crazy. Like it was like filled with white people <laughs> and then I met, I met with this guy and like two other people, like the guy was like in his forties, former exec at some other place. And the the other guys were like in their twenties and they're like the marketing guys. And I'm just like, wow, this is so Hollywood and And yeah, so like I never would have experienced that had not been for putting Vega out there. Cause they had, they had heard about it uh, through some means and wanted to talk. Um, so I think, I mean, and, and if that would have worked out, who knows what kind of financial benefit that that could have brought um Mm -hmm. so i think but yeah it's really tough and so currently i'm i i left the restaurant industry um Mm -hmm. in march when COVID happened and right i mean my advice to anyone who would be like i'm getting into podcasting and i'm you know if they're looking for it to be lucrative i would say you should find another thing to do um but if they're looking to like for the freedom of telling stories like <laughs> i don't think there i think there are a few better places right now than audio to like tell your story if it if it works <laughs> in audio you know so i think it's very hard
1: right yeah always consider that that you how to make your story work in audio and if it can the way that you want to say it what do you want to see happen like what do you what are your thoughts about? executives in Hollywood and all these other like major companies that are moving money into fiction podcasting and risk taking. Yeah. Right in this industry. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Man, I I would just hope that like so the people that I met with, I think they were actually had a really good approach with it. Um, which is they respected indie people and like who the the folks they thought were doing good stuff, then they wanted to They're very artist driven um, and I think that that is really awesome. And I hope more people who want to take advantage of this new medium. And, you know, I think everyone who has money sees podcasts is like, oh, IP, you know, and I can make this Mm -hmm. into a TV show or I can make this into a movie. Like, I would hope that their intent along with that, which I think is fine. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of money Mm -hmm. in those in those industries. And I think a lot of those things would be awesome TV shows and movies um but i would hope to kind of like what we were just saying like if you have a story like it's audio first and try to make a good like podcast uh and like take it take advantage of the audio medium um and then do what you will with it spinning it off to do your toy your toy brand or whatever you want to you know that it is you want to do but i would hope it's not just about the money at the end of the day. But people with money, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's like it's kind of weird. It's kind of a toss up. You want to like be able to write the things that they think will sell. But you also want to be able to write things that you care about and mm-hmm. hopefully find that spot. You,
1: you came on the uh, you were part of the complicating representation mm-hmm. panel at this year's Podtales with me and several other creators. Mm-hmm. Um and you talked specifically about the portrayal of religious traditions and and religions with political power, right? In Vega. That's that's as you've spoken before on this interview mm-hmm. also. Um so tell us a little about why this topic was so important for you to weave into the world of Vega. Like what why are you exploring this in particular?
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is one of those things, right, where um you start you start off writing a story about bounty huntress who's killing you know this this guy who's attacked your hometown and you ended up you end up writing a story about your like life you know like I feel like I'm on my own like spiritual journey and it just like made its way into the world like you know I I feel like it was an unintentional exploration of something and then it became like oh actually this sounds like what I'm going through in my own thinking about like religions with power and like you know, I'm used to seeing the world in this certain way because I have this belief, you know. And then coming to understand, you know, people who my religion says are bad or evil or whatever have like labeled in certain ways are not. And you know, just like, you know, I I I think I was really interested, and I and I mentioned this during the panel that we did together. Um, yeah, like when I read some of the stuff uh, that ISIS had put out after one of their attacks, I was like, wow, I can see how belief, like what, how the things we believe affect everything about our day-to-day lives and the choices that we make. And so if I had a different set of beliefs, I might be this person who would advocate for this, you know? Um, And does that mean I'm bad? Or, you know, somebody who doesn't believe that, are they bad? You know, like, and the reason in this letter that ISIS had, like, claimed this attack, they were like, we kill these people These people because they are infidels. Like, they are bad, and we are doing a good thing. Uh-huh. And so it was just, like, all that. I mean, I've always been a person, too, who's just interested in ethics and morality, um, things like that. So I think, like, just talking about what is good, what is bad, I've always enjoyed. And kind of like we were saying earlier with, like, epic redemption stories of, like, Zuko, and I think more recently for me, Catra, being, like, You know, it's easy for these people to be like, you know, at the beginning they're bad and they're they're just bad people or they're making these choices because they're bad or whatever. But like coming to understand the gray area between right and wrong and um, things like that. So I think uh, that the religious aspect stuff was very important to me because there are things that I was working out and 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 am still working out in my own life. So like season two and what's going to happen in season three, I think they will mirror uh, the the thinkings that I have now about where I am with faith and things like that. So I think that story is still being written, too. So I think it'll be interesting to see where it all ends up.
1: I think that's very exciting. Um, One of the things that, at least that I love about stories like this, is being able to see uh, the personal in the fantastic, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like being able to see that the author's personal touch and like real feelings and experiences, yeah. even if it's a fantastic world. Right. I and mean, possibly even especially if it is. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing also to do with with sci fi and fantasy. Right. Is to be able to take these questions and put them into this fun. Right. Uh, interesting, interesting world. Um uh, what was the process that you undertook in order to, like, accurately convey, like, this discussion about gray areas, right, morality, especially as in terms of, like, um, Vega and the way that Vega um, encounters them? Mm-hmm. Like, what was your thinking about how to integrate these questions into the work? Yeah. And and making it flow in this fantastical setting, right?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, a large part of my writing process after a while when I was like, okay, I'm a writer. I need to figure out how to complete these big stories that I have. I read this book um, called The Art of Dramatic Writing by a author named Lejos Egri. Um, And that book taught me this, I guess, writing principle. And that book is about writing plays, um, but it taught me about this thing called having a premise, uh, which is basically a mm-hmm. the theme. Uh, and so like when you have like a guiding theme, it helps to orient literally everything in the in the play or a dramatic work that you're doing. So I knowing that um, I kind of knew my setting and I kind of knew the plot and knew the characters, I wanted to make sure that every obstacle or just like a lot of the conversations, you know, like plays are all words and so like all the conversations that would happen would be centered around pushing on this theme. And so my my theme is for Vega is um active doubt leads to deeper understanding. Um and so, you know, in that in that line <laughs> is the whole arc of the story like so which would mean that Vega is the active doubter, which would mean everybody else who is, proves to be an obstacle for her are people who don't doubt or who are just like, I'm certain of this or, you know. So I knew that the conver- every conversation that she had to have, that was like a one that was pushing back on her was somebody who you know, I had to cut these characters out because there just wasn't space in the podcast. But in the novel that I was <laughs> writing, there were other hunters who were like super dedicated to the cause and like would have no idea why they, they, would ever question, you know, these things being right. This is what the God says is real or whatever. And Vega's like the very presence of her doubts was like threatening to them. In this book, Our Dramatic Writing, um, the author talks about this thing called a unity of opposites, which is what keeps the story going. And so, you know, every conflict, someone's on one side and someone's on the other. And so in all of Vega's conversations, and then maybe not all of them, I think in some of the conversations with her cousin later, she becomes on the opposite side of this thing. But every conversation is basically uh, active doubt versus um, like the this, this certainty. These are the way that things are. Um, and so you, you see that in play in... Uh, uh, the episode that you were talking about, where she's in the circle of the prophets and they're all like, you're not a good hunter. You have not been training your apprentice, even though she's like the best hunter in the world or whatever. And so like, <laughs> she's the one. And then she starts poking holes and like, can we do things differently? And they're like, no, this is the way things are done. And so um, I think this is the way we've yeah, always this done the it. The way it's always been done. And also this is the way that the God <laughs> wants it to be done. So who are you to, you know, ask a question you know, even mm-hmm. explore the topic, play devil's advocate for like a minute, like that's not cool, stop doing those things, you know? And um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's really, and then obviously based on of the personal experiences that I've had when you, or just like in general, like uh, when folks um, have very strong beliefs that are fundamental to who they are, it's really hard to have a conversation um for 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 them to even entertain the idea that this might be wrong with somebody else so this like oh well what if we're wrong what if this or that it's like a very it always turns hostile you know it's always like you're Mm -hmm. attacking something core to who i think i am and it's the same thing for anything and which is why i keep using the um the words belief system so it's not even about what god you believe in but like do you believe in like you know um yeah do you believe that you know this this thing being your identity that like you need to achieve your ambitions and reach your goals and what if you're like what if none of that matters and they're like what are you talking about of course it matters you know like it always turns into conflict um so i so you know some of these conversations that vega would have later with some of her other hunter friends and then again with the terrorists who she ends up um chasing yeah are these ideas of like what do you think is right and wrong and Attacking their fundamental beliefs, which is explosive, always. So, uh, always. Yeah. So always. those are kind of the. That's kind of the approach I took. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Love that line. That guiding theme. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Active. <sighs> so good. It's a deeper understanding. So in the first episode, when we are introduced to Vega as a character, we see Vega through the eyes of Doctor Muckrow, mm. um, and specifically. The, like the like the physical description, mm-hmm. like and her and her attitude when she, when she enters the room. Um, I'm going to quote a little piece of it here. Mm-hmm. Um, she reminded him of pictures he'd seen in his history classes, like the images of native peoples on the units on colonialism. And then, yeah, he'd always be—he'd always been kind of into that. At which point, of course, everybody hopefully cringes. Yeah, um, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> um, and then he goes on to like continue to describe Vega, um, or who he's seeing at least, uh, in this incredibly racist way. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. like very, very fetishizing. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to introduce Vega through the eyes of Dr. Muckrow first?
2: Yeah, I think because, like, I also want to um, touch on in the themes. So there's, like, this colonization aspect. There's this, um, you know, Vega is... I think I think I mentioned I can't remember now, but I think I do mention in that in that description too that she's been like her whole nation is like genetically um, modified to be like the bet like the like the peak, like peak, you know, biologically pleasing, biologically efficient um, mm-hmm. race, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that there is this attempt to be like okay this is who Dr. Mucro sees. And this is also what she's playing into um, in that uh-huh. first moment as well, like using these powers or whatever, like knowing that if she dresses in this way, if she shows up in this way, this is already disarming this man before she has to do anything. Um, and so it was kind of to illustrate this point. He's already fallen under her, you know, these things that she's a- she's actually wearing. Um, or these, these elements of her identity that he can twist and morph and whatever, like want. Um, and so for me, like Vegas power isn't in beating up the bad guy, like physically, like, you know, having fights it's in using these things, um, to play to people's Perceptions of her, you know, the way they can underestimate her, undermine her for various reasons. Um, so I think that was that was part of the reason. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, that was yeah, great. I, it's very effective.
2: I, yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I think I wondered. Yeah, like there's so much that I wanted to. I think in the book, I, there's a lot more that I touched on with like colonization and like genetic modifying and race, but it's like hard to do that in like in the first episode too you'll you'll notice um a detail that i don't come back to again in the first season which i wanted to which is like she's like cleaning up the scene a little bit and she puts on two sets of gloves and she's like a little like grossed out by everything like there's so much in that first description of vega that i wanted to tease out but yeah i think yeah one of the reasons for the macro thing was yeah i wanted her to him to see her as these like things that she wanted him to see and like to, to think yeah
1: no absolutely it Ve- makes the way that you set it up absolutely conveys how powerful vega is yeah like it conveys like her power and like her specialties and what she wants yeah okay cool very effective cool thank you <laughs> <laughs> yep
0: you can support ivoma's work and vega at her patreon patreon.com slash okoro That's I-V-U-O-M-A-O-K-O-R-O. If you like our interviews, tune in next week for our final showcase episode of the season, Desperado, an urban fantasy about death gods on a road trip to kill the Christian God. Radio drama revival runs on a million flapping butterfly wings around the world and the creases of your wallet. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Revival, And now we bring you our moment of will.
3: Oh, are we talking anime recommendations? Because, uh, it's winter. Uh, While we're recording this, we are getting close to wrapping up this season of RDR and taking our holiday break. And all of that means that it is time for my annual, well, annual, (laughs) my, my, Rewatch of Yuri on Ice. I I I joke because I rewatch it every time I am sad. So let's talk about Yuri on Ice. <laughs> this sports anime made some big waves uh, when it came out. It is about an ice skater uh, from Japan who is competing at very 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 high levels, um, getting close to these like you know big international competitions. When he totally, irrevocably bombs, um, he almost gives up on ice skating until he gets really inspired by his favorite ice skater, uh, Victor, who is from Russia. Long story short, Victor winds up becoming Yuri's uh, ice skating instructor coach coach there's a word for that it's coach uh and it becomes a, a a very sweet love story now that is not spoilers necessarily it is sort of why the show became very popular and very famous but it's also just really lovely it's very wholesome it's very funny and it is one of the only rom-coms i've ever experienced where there is a twist Towards the end of the first season So monumental That it changes It changes how the entire First, like three-fourths Of the season work Uh, When you hit the twist If you go back and watch Everything leading up to this Keeping it in mind uh, It is a dramatically different show That completely changes One of the perspectives And I love that Now, is this is this anime similar to Vega? No, it's not, uh, but it's lovely, and I love it, and I think that it's wonderful, and I think that it's a really great winter watch, uh, but I also, again, re-watch it uh, every time I'm sad, so it is uh, delightful. It is is a bit adult at times, uh, so heads up about that, but it's very good. You can find the first, I think three episodes on youtube via crunchyroll for free so highly recommended uh it is a good and wholesome time and yeah it's an anime it counts it counts that means it's time for the
0: credits this episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the kalapuya people the klitskani indian tribe the kalits indian tribe and the Athfalati tribe colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support native communities, you can donate to the Navajo and Hopi COVID-19 Relief Fund linked in our episode description below or at www.navajohopisolidarity.org. It is organized by Yeha Oznido, a grassroots and indigenous-led nonprofit organization. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our submissions editor is Rishi Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalsch and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is ticker tape, the GOAT. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.